4th of July to you all. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre this July 4. Good morning, Rob Marinko. How are you? Good morning, Royal. Doing great, thank you. It's great to see you as always. Likewise. I have to say, though, you know, was it the right move to start the show off by referring to the booby merit badge? Yes, it was, Royal. I believe it was. Well, the thing is, there are lots of uh, Boy Scouts, Cub Scouts out there listening. That was a terrible... Their parents are driving around with them at 5.37 in the morning of 4th of July. And and, and now the parents have to explain, Mommy, what's a booby? You know, am I really going to get a merit badge for that? Yeah. I I was supposed to get one in starting a fire, but Mm. see, you you never know what kind of conversations (laughs) might be triggered. Uh, That's fine. They'll be they'll be okay. They'll recover. I suppose you're I suppose you're right. I'm going to defer to your news judgment uh, you. in that regard. Mm-hmm. Uh, hey, let's uh, kick the show off by welcoming Scott McLean. He's KBC contributor, and uh, he's going to help us uh, sort out uh, the big mystery of the summer. Who the heck are, are the vice presidential nominees going to be? Scott, welcome to KBC. How are you? Hey, happy Fourth, Royal. Same to you, boy. When I was a boy, Scott, uh, the the nominees they'd pick their vice presidents right there, smack in the middle of the convention, and you could count on that. I guess there have been a few departures from that that approach, and, and it sounds like people are betting this year. Maybe we're going to get some news uh, in advance of the two conventions. Yeah, well, it sounds like uh, Donald Trump could announce something as early as this week, uh, likely before the actual convention kicks off, sort of getting some momentum heading into the Cleveland convention. And uh, he's got some new names on the list. You probably heard by now. He met with uh, Indiana Governor Mike Pence for the weekend at a Trump uh, golf property in New Jersey. Apparently, uh, Trump just thumped him around the golf course. But that's uh, not the headline that's coming out of this. It's well, is Mike Pence on uh, Donald Trump's shortlist? And it sounds like it is. Uh, although, obviously, this weekend, nothing was offered and nothing was accepted, at least according to Mike Pence. The other name that's coming up, uh, Senator Joni Ernst, the Iowa senator. She's now, uh, according to sources, on Trump's shortlist as well. Uh, she's a, a former Iraq war vet. She's a, a freshman senator and uh, could potentially help Donald Trump with his uh, women problems. With his women problems? Okay, Uh, that's diplomatically put. Um, You know, it's funny you mention these names because uh, all I've been hearing recently in terms of possible VP picks for Trump has been Gingrich and and, uh, Christie, Gingrich and Christie, which I think would send a a bad message just in terms of the importance of good eating habits uh, to America. But uh, and what I heard about Gingrich, I thought, my gosh, talk about baggage. I mean, you know, this guy really is not going to be reaching out to anyone other than that little sliver of five or ten percent of the population that that that's really is a big fan of Newt Gingrich. So I'm kind of encouraged that there are some folks on the short list other than those two guys. Well, look, Donald Trump has said, you know, for for a long time that he's looking for someone with government experience, and uh, Newt Gingrich undoubtedly fills that void. Where he might not fill the void, and I think what you're alluding to is uh, he might not fill the void with sort of women voters or, or with minority voters either, um, you know, Latinos in, in particular. And so it's not exactly a breath of fresh air, but it does sort of balance out Donald Trump's need for someone who knows government, knows the establishment, and that can actually help put some of his ideas into actual legislation. You know, I think oh, we're talking about that with Scott McLean, KABC contributor. Scott, I I hear all these factors being floated around, but, you know, when you look back over presidential and vice presidential history, I think most people would agree 
you know, the vice president really doesn't make much difference, both in terms of affecting the outcome of the election and also during the, the person's term uh, during the administration. And, and if you accept that as true, I wonder why it is there wouldn't just be a single criterion for Donald Trump, and that is I have to basically run the table. I have to win every swing state, Florida, Virginia, Ohio, you know, Colorado, New Mexico, they all have to wind up in my column. So shouldn't I pick somebody from one of the swing states to maximize the chance that I'll win at least that one that'll cut down a little uh, on my task because he's facing daunting odds. When you have to win every one of these swing states, I mean, good luck. The odds are heavy against you. Are, are, do you think that there's any kind of sense uh, along those lines within the Trump campaign that they, they better reach out to these swing states? Well, you know, it is odd. I'm, I'm sort of looking at the, the list of folks that are under consideration. Mike Pence, Joni Aronson, Duke Gingrich, Chris Christie, Jeff Sessions, Alabama Senator Mary Fallon, the Oklahoma Governor, Bob Corker, Tennessee Senator uh, on the Foreign Relations Committee as well as on suing the South Dakota Senator. Um, I'm not really hearing any, you know, big swing states. Uh, I think some people have talked, hey, if you put Mike Pence on, on the ticket, maybe Indiana is in play as, as, a, as a Republican state. Uh, I'm not sure, you know, where where that would fall. But you're right. I mean, it is sort of odd to see all these names and not very many from these swing states. But to your earlier point about the fact that, you know, maybe, you know, maybe there's something to the fact that your vice presidential pick may not make or break it. Um, you know, it, it's not perhaps the most important role. A lot of people look at it as sort of, hey, the guy who goes to the ceremonies with the president can't make it. But I would point you to the example of 2008 and Sarah Palin. And you know, when she first came on the scene, I think a lot of people looked at that and said, hey, here's a really dynamic candidate um, who can sort of balance out, you know, John McCain, who some people saw as sort of this old, you know, establishment guy. And here's some sort of new and up and coming in Sarah Palin. But I think ultimately, you might also be able to make the argument that Sarah Palin in some ways um, some John McCain's campaign as well. Yeah, you know, you, you can point to examples like that. And another one was back in the 80s when Walter Mondale was running against Ronald Reagan, and he picked Geraldine Ferraro. And that electrified the nation. I, I mean, the, in all of our history, we'd never had a woman at the top uh, or next to the top of the ticket, a VP or president. And people were completely jazzed about that. And then, you know what, after a couple of weeks, it was like, oh, yeah, no no big deal. And just as Sarah Palin electrified the Republican convention, I think when the political scientists got through crunching the numbers, I think they feel like she didn't really make much difference one way or another. And look at Dan Quayle. I mean, nobody really was very high on Dan Quayle. And it didn't stop Bush from from winning, and I, I don't think it was it, Quayle was responsible for Bush losing to uh, to to uh, to Bill Clinton. So I, I don't know. I, I think that it, that it tends to make very little difference. I noticed that Hillary is is looking at a former governor of Virginia, so maybe she's thinking about the swing states. You think there's any chance that she would uh, go for Elizabeth Warren to win over the Bernie supporters? Yeah. So I think Hillary Clinton needs a couple of things, and you're right. The Bernie Sanders supporters you know, are, are undoubtedly one of those things, these progressives within her own party, you know, especially the fact that when you see actual, you know, Republican names saying, hey, you know, I think Hillary Clinton might actually be a better choice um, than, uh, than than Donald Trump. Yeah, so it's a sign of the apocalypse. Exactly. And so she's having a hard time sort of galvanizing these progressives within her own party. And I think there's a couple people who could probably help her with that, you know, uh, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, certainly among those names. 
Um, and, you know, a couple of swing state names on there as well. You mentioned Tim Kaine, the Virginia senator, former governor. So I think maybe, you know, Hillary Clinton may be looking at this a bit more strategically. But you also see, you know, names like Julian Castro, Tom Perez, uh, Javier Becerra, um, you know, people who might be able to galvanize that Latino vote, which uh, I think some people would look at as odd because I don't think Hillary Clinton is going to have much trouble shoring that up. I think you got that right. Clinton needs, if you look at the demographics, is men, particularly white men. All right, Scott McLean, KBC contributor, thanks for helping us sort this out. You uh, have a great 4th of July. You too, you you as well. All right, thanks a lot. 545 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. We're all Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Let's check in with traffic. Bill Thomas, by the way, when we get back, Tarmac Gate, the Bill and Loretta show. So uh, definitely hang around for that. Uh, Bill, how are the traffic? How's the traffic looking? <laughs> Forty-eight. The time. Talk radio. Seven ninety K ABC. Royal Oaks. In for Doug McIntyre. Hope your holiday is off to a wonderful start. Hey, start your day off right. Mornings at five with McIntyre in the morning. Doug and T Ray cover the day's top stories and stuff you'll want to know with context and a laugh. And for the really early risers, catch the NBC Four News at four thirty. Right before Doug and T Ray at five, making it a little easier to get up and head to work. Mornings on seven ninety K ABC. So, Rob Marenko, you think maybe uh, family dinner at the Clinton uh, household uh, two, three days ago was a little frosty after uh, Bill Clinton's... Uh, what in the world? I, I thought about oh. you when Hugh Grant, you know, was caught with, the uh, I don't know, the transvest I took her or whatever his problem yeah. was, and he goes on Leno, and Leno uh, says, what were you thinking? Exactly. And that an interviewer at the Aspen Ideas Festival or seminar or Festivus or whatever... He, he laid it out for her. He said, what were you thinking, you yeah. know, Madam Attorney General? And, you know, she didn't try to make excuses. She just said, yeah, you know, if, if I had to do that over, I, sh- I shouldn't have done it. Yeah, my, my take, Royal, is, is pretty simple. When she said she shouldn't have done it, uh, she shouldn't have done it. And I think it's, it, it's as simple as she and Bill didn't expect to get caught. It was off at the tarmac. And, right. Uh, reporters were at a distance, and it they just didn't expect to get people, the reporters, put two and two together and then report it. And I think when you talk about them being at a distance, I heard some reports about how they, they cleared you know the area, they cleared the airplane so that the two of them could speak privately. I don't know if you heard that, but, I mean, to me, that suggests that, you know, well, it's just about grandchildren and travel. Maybe that wasn't necessarily true, because if it was just going to be total pleasantries, you know, why clear the area? You know, why have an antiseptic area so there can be a private chat between the attorney general and the former president? Yeah, and I'm not buying into this. Uh, well, the grandkids thing, listen, I totally believe the first five minutes of that conversation was, hey, Bill, you know, uh, you get grandkids now, and uh, how's the golf game? Okay, that covers about five minutes. They met for 30 minutes. So the t- other 25 minutes, I'm sorry if I'm not going to jump on uh, that school of thought that says just uh, just pleasantries. Of course, they didn't discuss the case against uh, Bill Clinton's wife uh-huh. and the, the presumptive no- nominee and the coronation and all that stuff. I, I just can't. 
Well, I, I just can't believe it. It's I'm, just, I'm, uh, I'm going to break some news here, yes. Mr. Newsman. I'm going to yep. break some news. Yep. I, yep. I actually have received the transcript. Have of, you? Of, oh, of this the, should be good. Between Loretta. Well, you get to play a part here. All right. Here, here's your copy. Okay. Now, you get to play the part of uh, Loretta. Okay. And then I'm going to be... Got it. I, I would say just do your own voice. There's no reason why you should try to do an accent for Loretta Lynch. That that would be fine to be Rob Marenko. Okay. Uh, I'll, I'll be playing the part of the president, right. and, and I'll, I'll be doing okay. So uh, here, here we go. This is amazing, folks. We've got it. Uh, Loretta, this is fantastic to see you here in this airplane. It's really good to see you. How are you? Bill, I'm doing wonderful. Oh, that's great. I know you've got grandkids. We've got grandkids. Isn't that mm-hmm. a fabulous phase of life, wouldn't you say? They're wonderful, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my wife, I'm our new grandchild. She was just rolling around around my office the mm-hmm. other day, and she noticed a bunch of papers, and I get these secret briefings as ex-president. She starts looking at them. I say, honey, that's not for babies. That's that's, that's just for, for grandpa. Mm-hmm. And she, you know what she said to me? She said, but it's not labeled classified, grandpa. Oh. So it doesn't really, it's not a bad thing that I'm looking at it unless it's actually labeled classified. And you know, Loretta, either out of the mouths of babes, wasn't that a profound thing for her to say? Yes, Bill, it was. Well, that's the end of the transcript. I'm not sure, 100% sure as to the reliability, but somehow I think he was trying to make a point. Let's get Hillary's take, her yeah. point on the whole situation of Tarmac Gate. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Both the Attorney General and my husband have said that they wouldn't do it again, even though it was from all accounts uh, that I have heard and seen, uh, an exchange of pleasantries. An exchange of pleasantries. We're talking about grandchildren. You know what is so weird to me, Rob? The idea that the Attorney General would say, okay, you know, this was kind of a mess. I'm out of here. I'm not going to have a role in the decision. And I'm thinking, how can that be? The FBI head, Comey, is going to make a recommendation to the Department of Justice whether to go after Hillary or not. It's the job of the Department of Justice to decide whether to indict her or not. They don't do what the FBI guy says. That's not his job. He investigates, he hands it over. And now there's no head, there's no leader of the Department of Justice. What's her her lieutenant, her uh, chief assistant attorney general is going to make the call. And it's just so weird. Of course, the Republicans have for some time been asking for a special prosecutor, which under the circumstances, you know, there might be even more reason to do it because uh, of the whole kerfuffle over the attorney general. Yeah, a kerfuffle indeed. But, you know, we have to look back several months ago when the president came out and was asked questions about this investigation. And the president, if you recall said something to the effect, listen, there's no criminal activity here. There's nothing that exposed classified information. Let's move on. Now, my sources, I love saying that. Uh, My source, I think it was the newspaper at the time, said that there were FBI agents working on this investigation that were livid because essentially the president said, here's how you're going to find. And you're going to find that there was nothing... You know, essentially giving them their marching orders. And James Comey, with his agents investigating Hillary, was said to be really upset with the president. Well, yeah, plus then the president doubled down by endorsing Hillary. So here you have the Department of Justice, who serves at the pleasure of President Obama, and they're supposed to be doing an independent job of getting the input from the FBI and deciding, do we indict Hillary Clinton or not? And the big guy, the boss, is saying, number one, Uh, There was no problem with national security based on what Hillary did. And then a month later, number two, I'm endorsing her for president. Now, 
in what on what planet uh, does a prosecutor feel they're capable of making an independent, fair-minded <laughs> decision when in that kind of environment? I mean, it just screams out for a special prosecutor. But you know what? I think we're just wasting our breath because I don't care what James Comey does or if he resigns or whatever. It is inconceivable that this Department of Justice is going to say, we don't care what the American people want. You know, the, the polls say that most folks want Hillary as their president. We're going to indict her. We're going to take that choice away from the American people. This Department of Justice under this president, I don't think it's going to happen. 555 The Time, Talk Radio 790 KABC. When we come back, how's patriotism doing this 4th of July? You may be surprised by the answer. Stay with us. 615 here on Talk Radio 790 KABC. We have seen uh, tragically lots of uh, incidents of uh, terror, both on the home front and internationally recently. Uh, so it is uh, it's great that we have with us uh, Chris Copeland. He is director of the Institute for Homeland Security and Cybercrime at Tarleton State University, Fort Worth, Texas. This is Chris. Welcome to KBC. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. How are you? Doing fine, thanks. And uh, gosh, it's just, uh, it is so tragic that this story uh, does not go away. Uh, as I say, you know, it used to be that we thought, well, 9-11, that's it for, uh, for the United States and we'll help the folks on the international front. Uh, but after San Bernardino and Orlando, Florida and others, uh, it has definitely uh, hit the home front. I wanted to start out by asking you about a point that I have heard Charles Krauthammer on Fox News make a few times, and that is this. Young recruits around the world, uh, people who might be tempted to, uh, to go with ISIS, they don't like losers. Uh, they, don't, they want to be with a winner. So Krauthammer's advice is you go after the leaders and you kill them and you root them out of the cities that they control, and the interest among young males will dry up because they won't feel like there's a winning team to join. Do you think there's, uh, there's much to Krauthammer's point in terms of a, of a strategy for the West? I don't know that that has been validated in any way. Um, the, the reason that we typically go after leaders is, you know, we, we know that someone's going to take their place. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's been a standard for a very long time. And you kill a leader, someone will eventually have to take their place. But you've disrupted the organization between now and then. Uh, when someone is leaderless, uh, they're, they're spending their time and resources either trying to fill the gap or trying to uh, get back to where they were, uh, rather than actually implementing some of their, their plans. So that's, that's really one of the reasons that... Um, you know, we, we go after leaders. The secondary format for that is that once you've killed a leader, you've demoralized the troops below that person. So not only in addition are they having to go out and find somebody else to lead them or fill that vacuum, uh, but they've been demoralized a little bit if they can, if, you know, they've killed the leader. Uh, and, and that's one of the reasons that uh, we do this as well. So, I, you know, I don't know that uh, it's been in any way shown that killing uh, or incapacitating leaders, either foreign or domestically, would have uh, an effect of... What about, well, what about the second part of Krauthammer's point, namely, go to the cities where they're in control, Fallujah and so on, which uh, there have been successes recently, and just root them out? Because to the extent they actually control physical space on the planet, as opposed to just being sort of a concept in cyberspace, that makes them less uh, attractive. Because, again, young recruits maybe are impressionable when they realize, oh my gosh, these ISIS folks, they control X you know, square miles in Syria, and these cities in, in Iraq 
track and so on. Do you think that is, is, is an important strategic step in order to tamp down the recruitment? So I think, well, you know, I'm, I'm honestly not sure because, I, I don't, again, I don't know that it's been tested or it's been shown. The biggest concern about taking back space is that you're denying these people, one, physical means, two, any sort of revenue from the people that they're taxing or the people that they're, they're in control of. Three, if you force them to leave a city, you force them to leave all of their resources behind, mm-hmm. or you force them to take only what they can with them. So they lose the ability to form up strongholds, they lose the ability to form up defensive positions, that kind of thing. Hey, go, go ahead, Rob. Chris, I'm, I'm just curious, when our president... Uh, well, the, f- the first point, I guess, is when he, he refused to identify uh, the enemy here at home. And secondly, when he says that they're on the wane and uh, they're in retreat and so forth, H- how does that help, I- if at all, the homeland security effort? So anybody who is local, and, and this is a propaganda thing, anybody who is in the United States domestically who is either considering joining ISIL or, or the Islamic State, uh, or anybody who is in the process of becoming radicalized, it does help demoralize them. Really? Absolutely. Huh. Okay. If if you're only getting, I mean, you have to consider how most of Americans get their news. They get their news in 30-second sound bites. So if that 30-second sound bite includes the director of the FBI or the president of the United States or the Joint Chiefs of Staff coming out and saying, we're doing a great job killing ISIL, then that's 30 seconds of propaganda they didn't have beforehand. So the, the see something, say something, folks, don't you think the argument can be made that the see something, say something is, uh, geez, I don't want to do that now because I hear the enemies uh, on their way out, and uh, who, who oh, am I, I to do that? Absolutely not. Uh, I've actually been very, very lucky. I got to go uh, with the FBI for a period of about 16 weeks, and see something, say something works daily. Uh, you would be amazed at how many FBI branches utilize see something, say something uh, to their advantage just from everyday people filing police reports, calling police, calling tip lines. Um, that's how they get tipped off. <laughs> it's, it's too bad, not to make too much light of this, but it's too bad the agents uh, working for the FBI in Orlando didn't do the see something, say something thing with the, uh, the, the, the terrorists there. Well, yeah, unfortunately, it requires the public to be as vigilant as the, as the agents themselves. You know, they, it's just like the police. The police can't respond unless you call 911. You know, there, there's no way for them to see everything from their patrol car. There's no way for the FBI and, and other agencies to see everything. So that's something that the public has to maintain is that if you see something that looks at her place, if you see something that could be something you don't know, and so just let them know. It's best to call it in and find out what happened. We're talking with Chris Copeland, director of the Institute for Homeland Security and Cybercrime. Uh, what do you think the answer is in terms of trying to cut down on, you know, the lone wolf recruitment business, just, you know, getting the message out by ISIS in cyberspace, and, and you never know who's going to pick it up and, and, uh, and try to engage in an attack? I mean, if it's not taking back their territory and if it's not killing their leaders— what would the main step you would recommend be to minimize the chance that, that people around the world who have access to the Internet are going to be uh, lulled uh, or be going to be uh, drawn into this circle and take action? So I don't know that there's going to be any one particular thing that there's no silver bullet to stopping radicalization of young people who are already impressionable. Um, you know, I remember being in my early teens and believing everything I was told until I became a critical thinker. 
And there's just no way to avoid that. They, they have to have some sort of structure in their lives, and they have to rely upon that structure. Um, there's, there's no way really to avoid that at all. But what we can do is what we're doing now. And that is, you know, we're watching for radicalization on uh, social media, Facebook and Twitter, YouTube. We're, we're watching the messages that are sent out. Uh, agencies and police departments as well, are, they're doing a, a really decent job of monitoring what they can uh, for signs of radicalization, especially for domestic terrorism. Uh, in regards to something like Orlando, when you have this lone wolf who has a problem, who has a mental instability on top of radicalization, uh, you know, being mentally ill is not a crime in the United States. And, uh, and unfortunately, a lot of people who have mental illnesses go undiagnosed. Unfortunately, there's not a way to stop that either. Uh, so it, there's no one silver bullet that's going to be a mixture of methods, and it's going to be a mixture of tactics. The tolerance of the American public for strong action against terrorism, searches and waterboarding, wiretapping, over-the-top security at airports, it seems to be a function of the level of terrorist activity. And in recent months, that level is going up. Do you think that we're going to see increasing pressure for, for more muscular action against terrorism on the home front? Yeah, that's an excellent question that I really don't know the answer to because it would be, you know, we're trying to predict how the public is going to react to something that may or may not happen. Um, you know, there, there's going to be another terrorist event. There's going to be another lone wolf or a radicalized person out there. Uh, the question is, when, where, and to what extent do they do they operate or do they do they strike? Uh, and judging the reaction upon that is going to heavily depend on how much damage is done. So I, you know, that, that's an excellent question. Uh, it would be lovely if we could try to predict that level of public sentiment, but I don't know that we can. Last question for you, Chris Copeland. If we continue to see more of the homeland activity in the next few months, like San Bernardino, Orlando, do you think terrorism has the potential for just hijacking the presidential race? And I guess some people would say that would be to the benefit of Donald Trump. So I think both candidates are going to have to deal with domestic terrorism no matter what. Um, I mean, it's, it's here. It's, it's been here for a while. Um, even before ISIS existed or ISIL existed, uh, there were people who were acting on behalf of Al-Qaeda here. So uh, insert a name of an organization, it's going to be here. Uh, that's not going to go away. Every presidential race from here on out is going to have to deal with domestic terrorism. All right, Chris Copeland, Director of the Institute for Homeland Security and Cybercrime. Thank you so much for sharing part of your holiday with us. You have a great fourth. Yes, thank you. You too. Thanks a lot. 625 The Time Talk Radio, 790 KABC. When we come back, is Lady Liberty a dude? You're going to want to hear this. Stay with us. And Bill Thomas is going to fill us in. How are all our roads looking? Time Talk Radio is 790 KBC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. You know, I love that lady's voice. I'm not sure if I'm, I'm wild about the lyrics, but... Uh, kind of catchy. It, oh, it's definitely yeah. catchy. Just don't think about Hillary. You'll like it fine. That's right. Hey, you know you can get more news on your commute home. Hear the NBC4 6 o'clock news with Chuck Henry and Carolyn Johnson live on 790 KABC Radio, followed by Peter Tilden's Top 6 at 6-ish at 6.30. That's the NBC4 News at 6 live and the Top 6 at 6-ish right after Jillian and John 
on your drive home on 790 KABC. We're joined now by Chris Farrell. He's Director of Research and Investigations for Judicial Watch. Chris, how are you this 4th of July? Good morning. Happy Independence Day to you. Well, thanks very much. Uh, i got to say, things have to be kind of satisfying in a way for Judicial Watch, uh, given the important role that you played in uncovering uh, the whole email situation. In the beginning, did you have reason to believe that uh, Secretary Clinton was using a private server, or did you simply want to know what her emails about Benghazi said, or, or what kicked things off? We had filed a number of Freedom of Information Act requests with the State Department concerning Mrs. Clinton's activities while she was uh, Secretary of State. Any number of different topics, but you know, part of which was really Benghazi, but also the very unusual employment arrangement that Huma Abedin had as a special government employee, wherein she was working supposedly full-time at the State Department, but also allowed her to have outside consulting uh, jobs with things like Doug Bands, Teneo Corporation, the Clinton Foundation, and other organizations. So that was kind of the backdrop that had us ask all these questions that eventually uncovered the fact that Mrs. Clinton was running this outlaw server. Poor Ahuma, though, having to be uh, Anthony Weiner's wife, wouldn't she be entitled to some some happiness in life? I. <laughs> I, I a, lot, a lot of these are, are self-inflicted wounds, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess you you could say that. So, uh, what's your take on on this uh, tarmac gate business? Uh, I mean, it's pretty stunning that uh, the former president would uh, would have a private meeting with the attorney general under these circumstances. I mean, yeah. It, on the one hand, they say it's just pleasantries, and on the other hand, uh, apparently they you know they cleared the airplane. They wanted to give them private time and so on, and I think a lot of people are having a hard time believing that all they talked about uh, was grandchildren and travel. Yeah, especially since, uh, you know, 48 hours later, uh, his wife uh, is under uh, interrogation by the FBI, right? So, um, look, this was a deliberate act on the part of uh, the president, the former president, uh, to sabotage the entire operation, and I'm not sure whether the attorney general was complicit or negligent but certainly look these are very intelligent educated experienced people they know all the rules of the game they know uh, what they can and can't do and so to let this happen to let this unfold the way it did whether whether it was president clinton's initiative or whether uh, the attorney general sort of passively let it occur the whole thing is a nightmare it's it's totally out of bounds uh, it screws up, you know, a year's worth of investigation. And anybody on either side will point at it and say, see, see, it was all compromised at that point, you know. So no matter how it plays out, uh, it's all sort of damaged goods. We're talking with Chris Farrell, Director of Research and Investigations for Judicial Watch. It's uh, judicialwatch.org. So when you look at the timeline... <clears throat> Obama wins, makes uh, Hillary Secretary of State, so she takes over in 2009 uh, when he starts. And immediately, she decides that she's going to do her, her work through her private server and her private email, which, which is not exactly a normal thing, and, and a lot of people say is an illegal thing. 2012, the Benghazi attack, uh, just a matter of weeks before the president's uh, re-election uh, uh, in November. So then... What we have are the Freedom of Information Act requests coming in. And in late 2014, faced with these requests for emails and so on, Hillary Clinton's people delete about 30,000 emails 
and hand over about 30,000 emails. And to me, I just assume in this era of cyberspace, you can't really erase or delete anything unless something is only on, you know, a piece of metal that you burn. Is it possible through some sort of cyber investigation to actually uncover those 30,000 that her people deleted? Or, or do we think they're just totally gone in cyberspace? Well, the short answer is yes, it is possible to recover them. Forensically, uh, there are computer uh, specialists in this field, uh, one of whom uh, is actually a consultant to us, the, uh, the, the guy who nailed uh, Ray Nagin down in Louisiana, uh, where he supposedly deleted something like 5,000 emails. Well, they were recovered by our expert, and he was jailed. So we're very confident that the technical sort of forensic skill or ability to delve into the, uh, whether it's the hardware or, for that matter, the dark web, right, the black side of the Internet, the place where uh, stuff still kind of floats around out there, there's the ability to go out there and grab that data and recover it. Chris, there's a lot of this investigation which is focused on the forensic side in trying to decipher emails that have been deleted. But I can tell you, as just a private citizen who often uses the email system, is that I can delete all the emails on, on my email server and all the emails that I have sent out. All the emails I want to delete, I can delete. However, the people that receive those emails, guess what? They, they still sit on their PC and they still sit in their accounts. So that's a part of the investigation that nobody talks about. These 30,000 emails that the Clinton staff erased when they were about to be investigated, can't you find out through judicial a FOIA request or whatever? Can't you find out who received these emails and then subpoena the emails or at least get access to them? You are absolutely correct. The other, the other thing to note, and this sort of bolsters your opening uh, sort of analysis in this part of our discussion, is that Mrs. Clinton didn't turn over emails. She turned over... 50,000 pieces of paper, right, which is the absolute, I'm using air quotes now, the dumbest form of data you could possibly turn over. If she had turned over digital or electronic copies, in other words, put it on a thumb drive or, uh, you know, somehow forward it electronically to the people conducting the investigation, then you would be able to see metadata, right? You'd be able to see things like BCCs, forwards, yep. And that, that's what you're really mm -hmm. looking for. But she didn't want that, right? So she turned over dumb pieces of paper and said, oh, see, I'm complying. It is so disingenuous. It is so misleading. Um, it's, it, well, it's also incredibly arrogant on her part. We're talking with Chris Farrell of Judicial Watch. Uh, what about going forward? Uh, it's very bizarre to think that the Attorney General of the United States, because of the kerfuffle over the meeting with Bill Clinton, is saying, I I'm because of the appearance here, I'm not going to be involved in the decision. Whatever the decision is in terms of uh, going forward with an indictment of Hillary Clinton or not, that's it. So what she's saying, essentially, is that Jim Comey of the FBI can make a recommendation and her people below her in the Department of Justice will make the final call as to whether to accept Comey's recommendation uh, to indict or not. Uh, I mean, is, is, does this strike you as being really bizarre, and do you think it really insulates the decision from political concerns, especially when you think that her boss, the president, has endorsed Hillary Clinton and has announced that he doesn't think Hillary did anything that interfered with national security? Yeah, this is another one of these half-lies, right? So she won't recuse herself. She's refused to do that. 
Uh, and so she's going to rely on Jim Comey, who frankly is another political appointee, and I'm, I'm in the minority of people in the country who actually don't have very much confidence in Mr. Comey. And the reason I say that is ask yourself what happened to Lois Lerner. Nothing. Um, and the whole IRS scandal, right? So, um, and so she's not going to be actively involved. She'll just accept what happens. But uh, guess what? For about two or three rungs below her, they're all political operatives, too. This isn't this, this happy talk about, oh, we're going to let the professional staff decide. What a load of garbage. I mean, that, they are not the professional staff. For, the, for about two or three layers below her position, so the assistant uh, um, uh, attorney general, the deputy attorney general, these guys are all political operatives out of the Democratic Party. They're not, you know, the guy who's been there uh, for 25 years who came in as a, I mean, they've all got a political agenda. So the notion that there's no involvement or there's no influence is just, I mean, it is just PR, public affairs talking points. It has nothing to do with reality. Now, a lot of the uh, the major news outlets, New York Times, for example, have reported some summaries of, of uh, Hillary uh, Clinton's emails that were handed over. For example, of the 30,000, they're uh, telling us about 2,000 of them had classified information. And then they had a, a randomly selected batch of 40 of those emails. And two of those, two of the 40, or, or 5%, actually had top-secret information. Then there's another batch of 40. Four of them, or 10%, had classified information, not retroactively classified. It actually was classified at the time. It, do you think that Hillary Clinton's position in the face of all this can fly where she says essentially, look, I never knowingly transmitted anything classified on the private server? Because it seems like that's what her defense is boiling down to, is that she had absolutely no intent to break the law. Well, the good news is 18 U.S. Code Section 793, which has to do with the handling of national defense information, intent is not an element of the crime. It's not required to be proved. I know this because I was a special agent of Army counterintelligence. I've actually put people in jail for this, right? So I'm not guessing at it. I did it. Uh, intention is not relevant. The other thing is that all these people who have been indoctrinated into sensitive compartment of information, SCI, which is that category of classified information that Mrs. Clinton was dealing with, it's the highest of the highest, they pound into your head repeatedly. It doesn't matter if it's marked, if it's unmarked. If you think it is, if you're not sure, it doesn't matter. You must treat the material as though it is. And uh, it's a, it's a no-excuse operating environment. It's zero defect. So you can say, well, gee, you know, I, I saw this discussion uh, in, a, in, a, in a paper, and it looked like it came from a certain category of information. And the reason I'm being vague is because it has to do with technical national collection assets. So think about, you know, very specialized means of collecting intelligence. You can't mistake it. You can't, you know, it's like the old joker, the old uh, uh, Justice Potter Stevens said uh, about pornography. Well, I can't, I can't give you a definition, but I know it when I see it. It's the same thing. It's that level of classified information. When you see it and you read it, you know exactly what it is. There's no doubt. So this is, again, they're relying on the ignorance of the general public not to understand this world of classified information and how it's handled. And they use these throwaway lines to deceive people. 
if you're in that world, if you're seeing that kind of information day in, day out, you know exactly what it is. How much of the decision to indict Hillary Clinton or not do you think is going to be driven by, by fear? Setting aside the issue of bias, which, as you suggest, the people in the Department of Justice uh, may be so biased uh, in favor of Hillary Clinton's election that they're going to let that blind themselves. Uh, and you may be right about uh, James Comey not being quite, quite the hero that some people think. But how much do you think the fear factor is going to infect the decision? Namely, the people in government are going to be saying to themselves, damn, uh, <clears throat> if we press ahead with this, we are essentially dictating the outcome of the presidential election in this country. And talk about pressure. You know, what if she gets off? What if she's found not guilty? Then it turns out the people who pushed the prosecution would have altered the presidency, essentially picked the president, arguably for no good reason. How much do you think fear comes into play here? I think it plays a very large factor. Uh, I think that there's a, a many people uh, who really are sort of just careerists, who don't want to rock the boat, who don't want to be in a position where they said, well, look, you know, you upset the apple cart. You flipped everything over, uh, you know, on really just a minor security matter. It's not a minor security matter. Uh, based on everything that I know and my discussions with people um, within government, and, and even publicly, people like Michael Hayden uh, and General Mike Flynn, uh, the former head of DIA, they've essentially assured us or, or guaranteed us that the Russians, the Chinese, for that matter, the Germans and the Israelis, have all read everything on Mrs. Clinton's server for the last, for her entire term as Secretary of State. This is a breach that actually is probably greater than Snowden. And so, uh, unfortunately, there's not a lot of courage, right? There's not a lot of people who are willing to step up and say, uh, look, you know, I don't give a damn where this goes. This is a, a crime. It's, uh, it's posed a grave uh, risk and damage to the country, and we're going to do the right thing. Um, I just don't have high confidence that there's that level of uh, guts in the system, frankly. Well, we'll probably know a lot more in the next month or so. Chris Farrell, Director of Research and Investigations for Judicial Watch. You have a happy fourth. Thank you. Thanks a lot. 6.54 The Time, Talk Radio, 790 KABC, Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. When we come back, Christian Mingle is embroiled in controversy. But right now, Bill Thomas, how are the freeways looking? It's McIntyre in the Morning with Doug McIntyre and Terry Ray Elmer. Seven oh six, the time. Talk radio seven ninety KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Happy Fourth of July to you all. So lots of drama coming up, Rob Marinko. Who will be the vice presidential nominee for the Democrats? What about the Republicans? Yeah. Uh, you know, in the old days, I don't think they announced ahead of the convention. Maybe rarely. Yeah, rarely. I think Ronald Reagan had some gambit when he was running against Ford in 76, and he picked Schweikert from Pennsylvania as a sort of a moderate. But that, that was a weird thing. It's, it's traditionally inside the convention but no more um so a lot of people are speculating we're told maybe we'll we'll get a decision out of trump this week so fortunately we've got an expert to help us sort this out niall stanage welcome to kbc he's with thehill.com how are you niall i'm great how are you we're doing great here at kbc thank you and appreciate you 
taking time out of your holiday to, to share thoughts with us. So uh, a lot of buzz on both sides, I guess. So we saw the uh, those matching blue pantsuits by Hillary Clinton and Elizabeth Warren. Uh, that was kind of a scary uh, image, but 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 a lot of people were excited by it, uh, and I haven't seen any uh, pantsuits on the on the Democrat on the Republican side. But uh, let's start with the Republicans. Uh, what's your take? What what do you think uh, Donald Trump is up to? Well, obviously, uh, you know Donald Trump has broken pretty much every rule during this campaign, and it's only he will make the decision purely uh, on his own. But the the names that one hears all the time are Chris Christie, the governor of New Jersey, uh, Newt Gingrich, of course, the former speaker, and uh, more of a a late runner coming up hard on the rails, Mike Pence, the the governor of Indiana. Those are the three that seem to be the front runners for Mr. Trump at the moment. Do you think it would be smart for Trump to pick somebody from uh, a must-win swing state? I mean, we are told that from the Republican standpoint, the electoral map is downright scary. If you look at the last, say, six elections uh, and pick out the states that have gone Democrat every single time and pick out the states that have gone Republican every single time, and so pretty good indication that that's how they're going to vote this time. The, the votes, I mean, basically Hillary is really close to 270, the magic number. She's within 15 or 20 or 25. It, boiling down to this, Trump has to run the table, like at one of his casinos. He has to win every single swing state, whether it's Florida or Ohio, Virginia, New Mexico, Colorado, a few others. Why wouldn't he pick somebody from one of those must-win states? And yet, I don't see those states on his short list. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point. Certainly, it has been a traditional uh, purpose of choosing a vice president that you do try to get someone who can help you in a, in a swing state. However, the historical record on that is kind of mixed. The last person who's perceived to have done that successfully, I think, is uh, John F. Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson winning Texas. Yeah, and that was 1960. I mean, that's exactly. uh, 56 years ago. Exactly. So because of that, I think that might uh, make people reluctant to go that route. But certainly your, your broader point about Trump needing to run the table is a, a good one and an important one. And uh, certainly the Electoral College map does favor uh, Hillary Clinton and the Democrats as of right now. Well, we're talking with my, Neil Strange, uh, associate editor at TheHill.com. So what about the other end of the spectrum? People who say, well, you know, it d- doesn't really matter. Uh, who was the vice president under FDR? Um, Rob Marenko, you're a history buff. He was a vice president, and he his quote of note was that the vice presidency isn't worth a bucket of warm spit, mm-hmm. which is a really unpleasant image. Really I, I don't even like bringing it up, <laughs> except I, I felt it, it was appropriate Thanks. in this conversation. Thanks, Royal. Yeah, but I mean, people, you know, Dick Cheney, incredibly qualified. You know, did he really make a difference? Uh, Dan Quayle, incredibly unqualified in the opinion of many. Did he make a difference? A lot of people say at the end of the day, it, it not only doesn't affect the outcome of the presidential election, but they don't really make a difference during the administration. And so in that sense, maybe it's all about uh, a whole lot of nothing. Well, um, it's possible that that argument can be certainly made. I think that there have been the recent vice presidential picks, including Dick Cheney, who uh, both supporters and particularly critics would say did make a difference in in the White House. Now, that isn't uh, always the case. The current vice president, for example, is clearly gets along well with President Obama. They have a fairly supportive political relationship. But 
has Vice President Biden um, affected the direction of the Obama presidency? I, I think that's a much more difficult argument to make. So uh, it, it depends a lot on the individual and the chemistry between that uh, individual president and vice president uh, as to just how big an impact that people are going to have. Let's switch over to the Democrat side. Uh, what are you hearing in terms of uh, what uh, kind of pick Hillary Clinton might be able to make? I, I guess uh, just logistically she uh, gets to see what Trump does because the Republican convention pops up first on the calendar this year. Uh, it, you know, she's been uh, appearing with Elizabeth Warren. She's also apparently been talking uh, with folks about possibly picking the former governor of Virginia, which would fit in nicely with the, with the swing state theory. What does what uh, your reporting come up with in terms of what Hillary Clinton might be thinking of? Well, right now, uh, we at the Hill have Tim Kaine as our top uh, contender, the front runner to be Hillary Clinton's vice president. That's in large part because he's both ideologically and temperamentally, <clears throat> excuse me, quite in tune with her. He's he's not really on the left of the party as such. He's not a, a figure that could overshadow her in the way that perhaps Elizabeth Warren could do. But the other question for Hillary Clinton is how much she wants to go uh, out to make a deliberate effort to bring the left with her. She has a difficulties inspiring young voters during her primary uh, struggle with Bernie Sanders. Does she try to get those more uh, young, more left-wing activists in the Democratic Party by choosing someone uh, like Elizabeth Warren or perhaps uh, Sherrod Brown, a uh, senator from Ohio, who's also identified with that wing of the party. It's kind of hard to imagine that a lot of Bernie voters are going to vote for Donald Trump. I know people have been talking about that, and Trump has made kind of a lame effort to, to, to reach out to people who, who also think, like he does, that the system is rigged. But for Hillary to pick someone like Elizabeth Warren and, and risk kind of offending a lot of people in the great middle who, who can be critical to the outcome— uh, in order to get, you know, how many more votes? Because I, I would think that there, Bernie folks are going to suck it up at the end of the day and say, yeah, you know, we, we may have to hold our nose a little bit, uh, but but we're going to be voting for Hillary Clinton. So does it, does it really seem to most political observers like it would be smart for Hillary to go with Elizabeth Warren? You know, it's a great question, and I think there is a lot of debate about that. Do you alienate uh, voters in the center ground? Just to give the, the counter-argument to that, there is a belief that the number of voters who are genuinely in the center, genuinely persuadable, is decreasing all the time, and that elections can be or are becoming more about energizing your base and making sure those people turn out. On the one hand, I agree with you that I don't think large numbers of Bernie Sanders voters are going to vote for Donald Trump. I think the fear on the part of Hillary Clinton's campaign is that those voters could stay home or, or certainly would, would stop a long way short of really getting engaged with her campaign in the sense of doing, you know, election canvassing in their local neighborhoods and things of that nature. Last question for Niall Stanage, associate editor of TheHill.com. Do you think we're ever going to have a president who has an accent like yours? <laughs> I think that might be a long time coming. I think we'd have to change the Constitution, unless, unless we got someone who was born uh, here in the U.S. and had gone to Yeah, that's Ireland possible, sure. You know, it's theoretically, you could be born where you... Well, look, Ted Cruz was born in Canada, right? 
And uh, the president was born in... Oh, never. no, we're not going to go there. Um, All right, well, you never know. Uh, You'd get my vote uh, now. That's that's one one vote to 100 million or two to go. You have a great fourth. Talk to you later. Thanks. 7.16 the time, Talk Radio 790K, ABC Royal Oaks, in for Doug McIntyre. We're going to shift gears to chat with our friend Jim Roop, KBC contributor, who's going to help us sort out this whole uh, gun mess up in Sacramento. Jim, how you doing? I'm doing very well. Happy Fourth of July to you, sir. Happy holiday. And before we get to uh, the story, I know we want to chat about the big changes in California gun rule, gun rules. So since I know you were all over the OJ trial, you and I uh, worked together a little bit in Vegas during the uh, OJ Simpson robbery trial. I, I, I did want to get your take on all the uh, OJ excitement the last few months. I don't know if you were glued to the set for uh, what the 10 night miniseries that FX put on uh, yep. all about OJ. And then uh, ABC and ESPN teamed up for a five night, seven and a half hour documentary, which, by the way, they released uh, theatrically briefly so that they have Oscar consideration. Can you imagine sitting uh, uh, Rob Marinko for seven and a half hours with a really so. giant bucket of no, popcorn? Uh, so, Jim Rope, what, what's uh, what's your impression been of all the O.J. Mania the last few months? Yeah, I, I saw both. I saw the, um, the, the, the miniseries, and then I saw the documentary, the 30-30 documentary, both the Five Night and then the, the theatrical release one. Uh, you know, it... it, it it brought back a lot of memories, of course. Gave me, uh, it jogged my memory on some inside stuff that maybe we heard but couldn't confirm uh, back then. Uh, but it just underscored the tragedy of O.J. Simpson from where he started and where, in the pinnacle of his career, and how he brought himself out of poverty, so on and so forth, and then just went right back down into obscurity. Here he's still uh, in prison in Las Vegas. And the up-and-down relationship with the African-American community and how the African-American community was so ready to embrace him again. Um, and, and I don't know that he ever really, other than the, um, the plastic version of his acceptance of their welcoming back, uh, if he ever really, truly... Uh, wanted to get back into that community. Yeah, you know, that racial angle is, is an interesting focus. And, of course, uh, unlike the um, unlike the movie that really uh, just drilled down on the trial, the murder trial, when right. you looked at that ESPN series, I mean, they explained how it, you have to put it in the context. The Rodney King beating video that, mm-hmm. that captivated the whole world, but especially the Los Angeles. That was from 91, and then the, the riots were 92, and then the O.J. trial... Uh, came after the 94 murders. And because of the I- injection of race into the O.J. drama with Detective Mark Furman, with his horrifically racist statements on those tapes, that became a racial thing. Whereas, as you say, O.J. you know, had not been uh, a big part of the black community. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk to Jim Murray later in the show today. He recently interviewed Christopher Darden, who has been pretty silent. And Darden is still bitter over the fact that O.J. Simpson couldn't even find the hood, according to Christopher <laughs> well, Darden. There's a famous quote from OJ. I, I'm not black, I'm OJ. Exactly right. That that sort of exemplified his attitude toward you know, fame. In, in the 30 for 30 series, when Danny Bakewell and Carl Douglas uh, really sort of uh, talked about the vengeance and the, um, the, 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 the payback from the Rodney King thing, the, the whole murder got lost. The double murder got lost in all of that. And in that rhetoric, you could really feel uh, and and a lot of us didn't really realize. We knew there was there was this division between races, 
but how deep that went, how how incredible that was, and, and how it came out during that trial. And to have people like Douglas and, and Bakewell talk about that, that was that was joyous. You know, it was it was it was almost. I don't know. It was almost hurtful to hear. That was a fascinating uh, slice of uh, of Los Angeles history. So, Jim Roop, uh, we did want to chat with you also about uh, some big stories on the gun front. Governor Brown has signed several bills into law. He vetoed a few uh, on the gun front, uh, but I know you've been following it. Uh, so, what's the what's the overview for folks? Yeah, you know, he the ones he vetoed weren't really anything that was going to change much, really. And he, you know, he's. Even though he's a Democrat, he kind of really has been inconsistent in the Democrat stance on on gun control. Uh, but he he uh, he signed into legislation the banning of the high capacity magazines any any magazine clip that holds more than ten rounds. Uh, he uh, signed into law uh, the you have to have an ID and a background check to even buy ammunition. Uh, also, if you falsely report that a gun was lost or stolen. That can result in a 10-year prohibition on firearm possessions for you. You can't lend a gun to even a family member now without them getting a background check. So those are some of the things. And they've expanded the, the definition of, of assault rifles. Some rifles that weren't prohibited are now prohibited. At least you have to register them. Uh, but then again, um, some of these laws were... Are, are, there's going to be lawsuits filed uh, from the NRA and other gun advocate groups over them. And uh, as they say, it's a violation of the Second Amendment. So he did sign a bunch of laws that, that beef up gun control. Right. You, you mentioned that uh, the ones he vetoed uh, weren't, weren't hugely important. One kind of caught my eye, though, and that was you remember that uh, maniac Isla Vista shooter uh, yeah. of, of a year or two ago, the guy that was unhappy because hot blonde girls didn't pay attention to him. Yeah, so he makes. So he makes this ridiculous, you know, selfie video, and uh, then he goes out and shoots up a bunch of innocent people. And so one thing that came out of that was the idea that if you are a family member or if you're a cop, and if you have reason to believe that somebody may be a little off the bias uh, nutty, then you may go to court and say, hey, Your Honor, uh, now I know there's got the, we've got the Second Amendment here and so on, but uh, but this fellow Schmedlap, uh, he's dangerous, and here's why. And I think you should make sure he doesn't have have a gun. Yeah, so, you know that's a, that's a surprising one. That was Hannah Beth Jackson's bill, and yeah. that was that's surprising that that got vetoed because it, it it the the language in the legislation was that there was a process. You, you and the court had to investigate. There was 30 days. Uh, to uh, for all of this to, to happen, it, I mean, even now with family and mental health professionals, there's been very few that have actually been granted the restraining order. Right. So I don't know that it would have been this flood of people who are angry at you at work trying to take your guns away, as a lot of the gun advocates were, were saying would happen. That was that surprised me that he did veto that one, but he you know he kind of explained it in his veto signing that you know we just enacted the legislation that allowed family to do it. Yeah, and that's that's my that's my understanding. It is as I read this, the law now says and and it's not changed as a result of Brown's action. If you are a family member in law enforcement, you may go to the courts for restraining orders, but people wanted to expand that to allow for example, uh, mental health workers and social workers and school officials to also go to court and try to make sure somebody shouldn't get a gun via a restraining order. So, so the governor just felt like you know we're gonna we're gonna draw the line. I wonder 
I wonder if the big picture, Jim Roop, is that you know you have what seem to many people to be reasonable measures in terms of background checks and, and keeping the guns out of, out of uh, people who are uh, hands of people who are crazy and nuts. But you know, as long as there is a deep-seated suspicion by a good chunk of the population that there is hostility within the government to a person's right to, to uh, own and bear arms. And in fact, when Hillary Clinton was asked recently, well, do you think the Second Amendment does guarantee the right to, uh, to own a gun? She hesitated for a long time, and I think she projected some real ambivalence about it. I think as long as people worry about the fact that the government is poised to someday confiscate it, if they have the attitude, as Obama expressed recently, you know, some people cling to their guns and their religion, I think you're going to see reaction, uh, resistance to what a lot of people would say would be reasonable steps to control guns or, or control the background checks. Oh, I, I agree. It's going to be a fight every step of the way. California has some of the strictest gun laws in the country, and now they're even more strict with these six new laws that will go into effect soon. So it, it will be one of those things where, uh, well, first of all, I don't think anybody really understands uh, what the apprehension is when it comes to guns. Um, because no, I, I think Hillary Clinton or, or President Obama, I don't think they can articulate exactly how, why they want certain uh, gun laws or certain gun control or what they call gun safety laws in effect. Everybody kind of gets the overall umbrella concept, but to really articulate why, it's really hard to do to get everybody to go, oh yeah, okay, I agree with that. So I think that's part of the problem, is that how do you really articulate that you agree with the Second Amendment right to, to, uh, to bear arms, if you want, but we've we got to limit it somehow because of all the stuff going on. So how do you actually say that to the point where everybody goes, oh, I get it. It's almost impossible to do. Good point. All right, reporter Jim Rope, you have a wonderful Fourth of July. You too. Thank you. All right. Take care. 725 The Time Talk Radio, 790 KBC. When we come back, the city council is on the brink of banning the box. But right now, let's check traffic with Bill Thomas. Hey, 28 The Time Talk Radio, 790 KABC. Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. Wishing you a wonderful 4th of July. So, Rob Marinka, i, I got to get your take there's a problem in Albuquerque, and, and there was a solution implemented by a, a young man. I want to know if you would have done okay. the same All thing. Right. So he lives in an apartment complex, mm-hmm. and uh, authorities say he took drastic action to escape the sounds of his neighbors having sex. What did he do? He set fire to his oh, apartment. that's yeah. not necessary. And apparently, the, the noises were just, you know, uh, annoying, maybe wow. approaching unbearable. So Reuben Cook told police he tried to burn anything he could think of in his apartment, <laughs> In order to get away from the annoying sounds, so so you're saying you would have chosen some other no approach. maybe knocking on the wall or, or yeah. like a, to uh, going next door ha- handle of a broom on the Ce- yes yeah, something ceiling not, yeah not lighting a fire criminal complaint uh, filed against him found minor fire damage when they arrived at his apartment and the 36 year old Reuben Cook said he heard people having sex upstairs and decided he wanted to go to prison to get away from the noise. Seems like an overreaction. Seems like But then I wasn't there. I mean, maybe it's been going on for a long time. Who knows? He's been charged with arson. Uh, Though I did have that same problem years and years ago with the noisy sex, but it was mostly from the women (laughs) banging on the door to get out. You know, that was the I'm guessing. (laughs) I'm guessing either mental illness or alcohol or possibly both might have influenced this situation. 8.30 The Time, Talk Radio, 790K, BC The Place, Rob Marinko with headlines. 
at the time, Talk Radio 790 KBC, Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. So Rob Marenko, uh, new London mayor, uh, Sadiq Khan, he's already uh, making his mark. He's banning ads that promote an unhealthy body image from the subway system. What ads yeah. would promote well, an unhealthy... these are uh, women in bikinis that are, are kind of thin, yeah. So ads for dietary supplement showing a thin woman in a bikini next to the text, Are you beach body ready? Drew a lot of criticism across the British capital after they appeared on the subway walls. And now, thanks to the, uh, the uh. wisdom and the guidance of the new mayor of London, such ads will no longer be allowed. As the father of two, na- two teenage girls, uh-huh. Khan said, I'm extremely concerned about this kind of advertising, which can demean people, especially women, and make them ashamed of their bodies. Yeah. Excuse me? Well, how, I mean, we're talking the- about political correctness run amok. You know, in this context, I won't stand for it, Rob. I'm sorry. I mean, this is censorship. Where the hell does this guy get off saying, oh, you know, my personal sensibilities are such and such. I don't want a woman in a bikini, you know. Well, how about the market system of people? Yeah, they don't want to buy the product. Don't don't buy it, Exactly. They can boycott it or whatever. I mean, this is is not a a good start for the new mayor of London, I think. Maybe in some other context, but I'm not willing to go along with, with tearing down the pictures of the, of the women in the bikini. We're together just, on this one, Royal. Several European countries have passed laws banning fashion shoots with emaciated models. So I guess they got to measure the height and the weight and so on. Whatever. Hey, stay with us, folks. Gunfight at the Capitol Corral. Assemblyman Santiago will join us and explain. Viva Las Vegas. Viva Las Vegas. How I wish that there were more than 24 hours in the day Even if there were 40 more, I wouldn't sleep a minute away I can't interrupt the king. I guess I have to. I'm 39 at time. Talk Radio 790 KBC Royal Oaks in for Doug McIntyre. So, uh, yeah, it's Viva Las Vegas here in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, and there in Vegas. Apparently, the uh, at least the according to the Los Angeles City Attorney, the consultants hired by the Department of Water and Power to fix that uh, that billing system, Rob mm-hmm. Marenko, they uh, the consultants went kind of wild and they spent some uh, some money, uh, city money that they shouldn't have. And they're, uh, they're investigating that, aren't they? Yeah, city oh. attorney's looking into it. So what happened that? is. That they're uh, arguing that uh, this uh, this firm, this accountancy firm, Price Waterhouse Coopers, uh, inflated their time records during payments for work they didn't do, and also spent money on prostitutes, hotels, and bottle service liquor for two Las Vegas bachelor parties. Uh, so they, there's a lawsuit involving Price Waterhouse Coopers. I mean, don't they do the Oscar uh, tallying? Aren't they the the ones yeah, that how, authenticate that? What is the, everybody turned into an idiot the last? I mean, how can well, you? Well, we don't not, know if it's true. It may, could be totally made up. I, but it makes me lose confidence in the Oscar count. Really? But you know, I think what's going to happen is next <laughs> yes. time around, if the best actor and best actors are porn stars, uh-huh. we're going to know. I'll you give know. you a little. This clue just there, in: yeah. uh, John Holmes and Linda Lovelace. So they weren't nominated, but they're the surprise write-in winners. Royal Oaks, uh, nice seventies <laughs> references, man. Come yeah. on. Yeah, I, I like to keep it current and uh, real. Uh-huh. All right, so this lawsuit uh, alleges there was fraudulent misrepresentation and so on. Uh, the uh, spokesman for PricewaterhouseCoopers says they never falsified time records, never received a single dollar uh, from the uh, LADWP to which they were not due. 
But the argument is that uh, from 2011 to 2013, they uh, threw uh, two lavish Las Vegas bachelor parties at uh, taxpayer expense, uh, one for the consulting firm's partner in charge in 2011 and another for a firm manager a couple of years later. Uh, in addition to hiring professional escorts, we'll say, uh, they used the taxpayer money for condoms, a steak dinner... <laughs> <laughs> and a poolside cabana party. Now that raises a, 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 yes. an issue in my mind. Uh-huh. You're you're pretty good with languages. Would you say we should be calling it cabana party or cabana party? Because I hear a lot of people say cabana. I think in the U.S. it's cabana. Well, what about El Nino? We don't say El Nino. We say El Nino. Actually, Royal, I do say El Nino. You do? Yeah, that's right. Ter- Terry Realmer's here every day. Well, I think that's wrong. I think you should say El Nino, <laughs> and I think we should be saying cabana party. <laughs> so in 2010, this accountancy firm received a 600 I'm sorry 60 million dollar contract later increased by 9 million from the DWP to update the utilities outdated billing system so a huge kerfuffle it'll uh, continue on in, in court for a long time yeah. also uh, controversially in uh, Los Angeles uh, down at city hall uh, there's a practice for uh, they're, they're talking about banning the box, meaning if you're going to apply for a, a job uh, in um, in Los Angeles City, a private job with businesses, you're not supposed to be asking people about their criminal convictions. Uh, if you were a, a boss, an employer, would you be kind of curious as to uh, what the criminal background of your uh, well, actually, is? Uh, especially if I wanted to hire a hitman, yeah, I'd want to know the guy had some experience. Sure, well, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, that's why I'm here, Royal. <laughs> but it's uh, you know, it's gotten to be pretty controversial because around the nation, uh, with few exceptions. Now, you know, if you've been a child molester and you're trying to work at a child care center, yes, you're allowed to ask about that. Uh, and a few other, but other than a few exemptions, in general, uh, the federal government, the California state government, uh, San Francisco uh, City Council has said, you may not ask about a person's uh, uh, background because they say, you know, these folks can't get jobs, and then they're well, just going to get what, back into crime. You know, if the if the crime rate weren't dropping like a rock, uh, oh, it, oh, wait a minute. No, it's not. It's actually going up like a hot air balloon. Um, yeah. Geez, w- wonder why they wouldn't want any boxes checked. Well, Holy M- Mayor Garcetti is on the bandwagon. Oh, he a... has recruited yes. 32 other mayors across the country to join him in urging college admissions companies to stop asking applicants about their criminal history. Sure. It's the common <laughs> application. No, you know, I'm sorry, but geez, oh, I'm, come I'm on. ticking Rob Marenko off here. Oh. The common application is used by schools like Stanford and USC. It's already being tweaked. This fall, instead of asking the applicants if they've ever been convicted or judged guilty of a felony, misdemeanor, or other crime, the other crime option will disappear. So Can you put on a resume, hey, uh, prospective employer, guess what? I'm not a felon. Yeah. Is, uh, that's probably illegal to do that. I, you know, I don't get it. I don't know why schools and colleges, oh. when they pick teachers or, or they're picking students, uh, or if you're a landlord and you're picking a tenant, uh-huh. uh, why you shouldn't be able to say no to people who, oh, I don't know, were guilty of violent crimes, you know, murder, rape, assault with a deadly weapon, or even property crimes, you know, robbery and burglary and embezzlement and so on. As a business owner, why can't you pick your employees? I mean, if, if you feel that there's a problem such that, for example, racism caused people to be incarcerated and now they're being punished for the fact that they have to say yes. How about solving that problem? How about weeding out the racist cops? 
How about re- weeding out the racist employers mm-hmm. who refuse to to give jobs and so on? Uh, how about you know improve job training and drug rehabilitation, etc.? But to say to a company, a, an owner of a, a small business, you have no right to find out if this guy you know killed eighteen people in Indiana with a tube sock full of wood screws. You know you're not entitled to to learn that. It's it's truly amazing to me. Nine forty five. The time. Talk radio seven ninety KBC. <laughs>